difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts in a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Genevieve Kosky. And Keith Phipps. In our last episode, we discussed Chris Smith's breakthrough documentary, American Movie, which premiered at Sundance exactly 20 years ago. Now Smith has a much-talked-about new documentary on Netflix called Fire, about the Fire Festival debacle and its aftermath. What was Fire Festival, you might ask? Well, Fire Festival was a two-weekend music event that was intended as a promotion to support the Fire Media app, which billed itself as an Uber for event bookings. God, I guess they still do call things Uber for whatever. Uh, <laughs> Fire founder Billy McFarlane and his partner, Ja Rule, originally planned to throw the event on Pablo Escobar's private island in the Bahamas, where attendees would stay in luxury villas, eat gourmet food, and party on the beach while bands like Major Lazer, Blink-182, and Migos performed. To promote the festival, they made a promotional video in Paradise with supermodels like Bella Hadid and Emily Ratajkowski and flooded social media with messages from high-profile influencers. The event sold out quickly, but McFarlane and company gravely underestimated how difficult it would be to pull off. When Fire Festival Weekend finally arrived on the last weekend of April 2017, the site had been moved from Escobar's Island to an unfinished lot near a Sandals Resort in Great Exuma. Those luxury villas were, in fact, FEMA disaster tents left over from Hurricane Matthew. The gourmet dinner was plain bread and cheese and an undressed salad, and not a single note of live music was ever played. Christmas Fire tells the story as a compelling piece of meat and potatoes journalism that's far from the verite of American movie. But here's another movie about a charismatic leader who overpromises and underdelivers, albeit in a much different way and with a much different intent. We'll be back after the break to talk about it. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All these models, like, in the Bahamas. The most insane festival the world has ever seen. Island getaway turned disaster. It became very barbaric. Right now, we are the fucking laughing stock of everything. Just wait until you see what you're getting yourselves into. American rapper Ja Rule is in the Bahamas with his business partner. Billy McFarlane is an amazing entrepreneur. He can convince anyone of pretty much anything. They just bought an island. Pablo Escobar's island. Oh my God. We're gonna throw a festival, yeah. Within 48 hours, they sold out. These guys are either completely full of shit or they're the smartest guys in the room. We were working around the clock, no sleep. Billy's like, bring more workers. We need more workers. Every single day, guys, more tense. He just would not take no for an answer. And he just kept pulling money in somehow. Desperate people do desperate things. He was lying to investors and making it seem like we were making a ton of money when we weren't. I mean, that's fraud. We need to get the messaging out now that this is not a luxury music festival. 
Oh my God. There's mattresses all over the place getting soaked. The save yourself mode kicked in. Right, it's a free for all. It became this looting mentality. There's an angry mob, they're pissed off and they want their money. Powerful models built this festival. And then one picture of cheese on toast ripped down the festival. They just couldn't physically fit that many people on the island. The event's co-founder is facing up to 20 years in prison. Oh, if you had thousands of dollars to go on a trip to see Blink-182, that's on you. That is Darwinism at its finest. <laughs> so, fire. Uh, Christmas fire on Netflix now. Not not a whole lot like American movie, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. But uh, basically, what did you think of this film? I mean, like you say, it's extremely entertaining. You know, I, I was only familiar with Firefest like as it was actually blowing up, as it was happening. I hadn't been aware of the lead up to it all, at all, nor of the fire media aspect of it, which I think is one of the most compelling things about the film Fire is the interviews of talking heads with the employees of this fire app, you know, who are building this app, who got kind of like roped into this crazy scheme. I don't think I was aware of that until seeing the documentary, actually. Yeah, yeah no, I, that's what I'm saying, is, yeah. is I wasn't either, and that adds a really interesting wrinkle to it and makes it even more tragic. I, I hesitate to use the word tragedy, you know, here, because this is, you know, ultimately a bunch of people who were willing to pay a stupid amount of money to go to a stupid event, you know, not not <laughs> getting what they were promised. But, you know, there are like some smaller tragedies i think happening in here the thing with the caterer and all the island laborers is very upsetting and like i said the employees of this startup who were very at least here they're portrayed as very much believing in the fire app and what they were doing and it, having it kind of torn out from underneath them and it really just highlights what a terrible terrible person uh mcfarland is especially at the end when he is like not laying them off but like we can't pay you and <laughs> saying we can't pay you anymore and uh i forget the basically the one woman employee who was like so you're not laying us off so we can't collect unemployment just kind of like the ripples of incompetence that this movie reveals make it seem so much bigger than just this amazing social media moment which fire to its credit does give us like we we get the cheese sandwich you know yeah, like you it, 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 it would not be right to not give us that but we but, don't we but. don't get let's do it and be legends let's just do it to be legends that doesn't <laughs> make true. it in the movie yeah. uh, what about you Keith what'd you think uh, it was tremendously entertaining to see but there's a lot to chew over here too just sort of the empty promises of, of so much of the disruptors uh, I mean for every Uber you get things that prom try to be Uber but aren't and then you know, or you get Uber. Or you get Uber, which, which is a whole, other, a whole other thing to yeah. get into, which, which is kind of outside the scope of the film. But it's like, you know, you're disrupting stuff, basically putting a lot of people out of, out of, out yeah. of work, you know. But no, I mean, it's fun to watch. The stories are great. But I, I do like that it's balanced with all the perspective of the, all the people that really suffered from this. I mean, it's a very funny and, and, and the idea of, of a bunch of overprivileged, uh, quote unquote, influencers being suckers for this kind of thing is is inherently kind of amusing and satisfying. But I mean, is there's this is not a victimless crime. This is people who gave a lot and will never see that money back. 
And, and I feel bad for the fire workers too, especially the people that are, do believe in Billy McFarland because he does talk a good game. Yeah. I mean, he does, he, you know, I could, I'm not so smart that I wouldn't necessarily fall for his line of, of uh, BS either. I should say in terms of the people never getting their, their money back, uh, there has been for a couple of weeks now a GoFundMe campaign to give to the oh, caterer. Marion Roll. Marion Roll, yeah. I know that. It is currently at $205,000. Oh, that's great. So, Can we link to yeah. it somewhere or something? Or? Uh, sure, yeah. Right. Um, yeah or, okay. Certainly getting passed around enough to where she's yeah. gotten way, way more than even she yeah. lost, and she yeah. lost a lot. Yeah, uh, there, well, there's not an easy way to, to link in a podcast description, so just Google Firefest Fiasco GoFundMe. And you can, if you feel like donating, go for it. Definitely. And, and this is really the theme of the movie. It's not, I, I don't think it's just simply a part of it. I think it is the reason the film exists is because Fire Festival, as we experienced on social media, was just the ultimate in Schadenfreude because mm-hmm. it's like, who cares about these idiots getting ripped off? I mean, everything, every part of it was hilarious, right? Mm-hmm. And so the documentary just shows us that completely other side, which is that this festival, there were so many people on the promotion side, on the technical side, on the booking side, multiple vendors. I mean, people who worked extremely hard in earnest and in good faith to pull this off, and they nearly did it. (laughs) And they nearly, I mean, some version of this festival, you know, nearly came to pass in the sense that they actually did not cancel this thing ahead of time. Mm -hmm. I mean, they they were going to move forward with it. And so for the documentary to kind of call attention to those people and make them the heart of the movie I think is important. I think it's the movie's reason for existence. So there's that. And then the other aspect of it is is, is that it's just such a nice, clean piece of storytelling. Like it just as a just a TikTok through the events, mm-hmm. through how it started and taking you all the way through to the end. And then this crazy aftermath where where McFarland you, you know, under indictment or whatever is off trying another scam. Um, the most transparently scammy of a career of scams, too. Yeah. Oh my god. That's the all other, that the stuff like mag- a- that magnesis stuff is just unbelievable yeah. but even that has a fig leaf of legitimacy to it whereas yeah. this is just like they're selling tickets to things that you can't buy tickets for oh <laughs> i mean gosh. it's just pure uh, uh scammery it, it is and, and also taking advantage of the people who are on the fire festival mailing list of people who had already been ripped off by the festival yeah. coming back to them again it's like wow you really just have no conscious or soul whatsoever but um but i was but i did appreciate getting that other side showing that they're you know i mean the film is even moving in sections it's certainly really really again funny i mean just you know (laughs) yeah obviously the story about uh, i think his name is andy king uh Mm -hmm. trying to get uh asked to uh to uh take one for the team take one for the team (laughs) by getting in order to get water from customs i mean that is that's one of those things like the cabinet scene it's like you're not gonna leave that like sitting in the <laughs> sitting on the cutting room floor that's but he, going he, the movie. and he even says something like he, he's like oh, i'll just say it it's not gonna go very far like dude what, <laughs> do you not see no, the he's, camera he's a, he's a meme <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so you know maybe andy king uh well i think it's pretty clear andy king maybe has had some lapses in judgment uh, over the course of his life and that is just one of them <laughs> i mean one of them is to trust Mm-hmm. Uh, Billy McFarland and, and to believe in it very strongly. Yeah. I mean, strongly enough to do what he was willing to do. I mean, and, and uh, well, they had worked successfully, quote unquote, successfully together. Pre, you know, through what what is Magnesis this? through Magnesis. Yeah, his, you putting know? events for people for card holders and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I don't know within whatever legitimacy is in the world of event promotion for a millennial credit card something you know they have a somewhat legitimate working relationship but 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, I mean, <laughs> the, you know, really just the card itself seems to be the main attraction there. Because you it's put made it, out you of put metal. It, down, and it, it funks. Just, it clanks. Well, and there's know, a clubhouse. Got, Don't forget there's a clubhouse. There's a clubhouse, <laughs> and right. And you get benefits, uh, vague, vague benefits. Yeah, I'm sure there's a whole other documentary to be made about Magnesis and all that it represents. It's probably for a while the easiest way to get in touch with Ja Rule, though. well okay so to go back to the the fire app like i don't know maybe maybe i'm gonna make a fool of myself here but i think like there actually is something to this app to the idea of direct booking you know like we there's actually a very successful platform right now called cameo that kind of does something very similar except you pay celebrities directly to record a little video for you Mm. but it's kind of this it's like a direct link between a consumer and a celebrity, you know, um, without the middleman of <laughs> wait, what was the name of the the guy that it was like Johnny Muscles or something that that yeah, he tried to to get in touch with Jaw Rule for. He's like, I gave him five hundred dollars, and then he comes back and he's like, Jaw hates your offers, and gave him a thousand dollars. Like this, like that should be indicative of what Billy uh, McFarland is uh, his approach to uh, to business. But uh, but anyway, my point is like I think there may have been something to the Fire app. So I think that's why those scenes of the employees of Fire Media or whatever it was called, like, did kind of get to me because I could understand why they believed in this this thing that wasn't necessarily going to maybe do a whole lot of good in the world, but was going to fill a need for some segment of the population. You know, it could have been successful. To book Ja Rule for your kid's birthday party. (laughs) Or, I don't know, some real housewives or, you know. uh, I mean, it could be anybody, though. It's a booking app. It could be booking. Yeah, that's what what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, No, it is a a good idea. I was curious um, to know if either of you have seen the Hulu version of this story i wanted to remain pure no i I did not although i am going to watch it uh at some point because like i said i did find this uh tremendously entertaining but um no i just didn't have time yeah no i I haven't watched okay well because it was clarifying for me to see them both i mean i could i've been can you can you give us a rundown of uh, you've mentioned a couple times you wrote a couple pieces about uh, fire but uh for people who haven't read that can you give us a bullet point let me see if i can can run through it here Uh, i was uh working on a a long profile of Chris Smith for The Ringer. And um, in the course of my reporting, in the course of actually writing the piece, I needed to get, I had a couple more questions I wanted to ask of Chris Smith, a couple things that just needed to patch the whole thing together. And I asked for five minutes with him. And this was on Monday, the Monday that Fire Fraud, the Hulu doc, dropped on the service out of nowhere. And, like um, the moment the embargo lifted on reviews for Fire. Well, fi- right, exactly. <laughs> like it was just you know a well-timed detonated bomb, right, on, mm-hmm. on that Monday. And so that's when I talked to Chris Smith and I I asked him the question I needed him to ask him. And then I just asked him, hey, you know, there's this other film out there. And, and, you know, I never asked you about what you think about it, you know, existing and and dropping today. What are your thoughts on that? And then he offered this anecdote about Billy McFarlane coming to them asking for money, saying Hulu people had given him $250,000 to appear in the movie and for licensed footage Mm -hmm. and that... um, he was coming to them asking for a certain amount, asking for, I think, 125000 or 150000 and then getting rejected and then coming back again and asking for 100000 in cash <laughs> and then also getting rejected. And so I took that quote and brought it to the Hulu people and said, hey, you have any comment on this? You know, Because uh, I think it had been kind of in the wind that the Hulu people had paid Billy McFarlane, but no number had been attached to that transaction at all. And Hulu or, or, you know, initially brushed it off but then they said well we've got the filmmakers on a plane i can give get 
you on the phone with him in a few minutes and yada, yada, yada. The filmmaker gave you about 10 or 11 minutes of just pure hot fire. And then I <laughs> went back to Netflix and it went back and forth. And that piece is on The Ringer. And, and basically it was like an ethics off between the two movies. On one side, the Hulu documentary did indeed pay Billy McFarland for an interview and, uh, and for footage that was under his control. And uh, the sum is disputed. It seems quite likely that Billy McFarland gave Netflix a number that he didn't get to mm-hmm. try to leverage more money from them. That makes He Johnny muscled them? He Johnny muscled them. So, so yeah, that makes sense. But they did pay him a sizable fee uh, for this material. And, and uh, it was the opinion of Chris Smith and of the producers of the Netflix film that it would be wrong of them to give money to this person who had ripped off so many people who are profiled in the film. On the other end of things, the Hulu people were complaining that the Netflix people brought on Jerry Media and Matt Projects, two people who had been involved in promoting and marketing the festival as producing partners in their documentary because uh, it was their contention with jerry media aka fuck jerry in particular that they had been aware well aware that this festival was not going to live up to billing and had done nothing about it and were complicit in this fraud and so that was kind of the conflict that was happening between the two movies and in and, and that that was the mud that was being slung within <laughs> on my computer right. that night so so that that was kind of the way things to get, came together and that, uh, i was able to break news for the first time ever <laughs> so that, that was the thing and, and uh i mean i've been very cagey about my opinions about one versus the other but since since the dust has settled yeah. on all that we're on this podcast give it to us i think i think fire fraud is a piece of crap <laughs> i really do i think it's a terrible film and i'm i'm shocked when i see smart people saying that that it's the better of the two movies i don't get it at all uh, i think you could if you're being kind to it could say that it, it is almost like the uh, the editorial after the article that you would see, you would see netflix first as is just a rundown of what happened mm-hmm. and then maybe turn to fire fraud as as a piece as a is work it the hot of, take it's a hot take <laughs> and it's got like it's got a lot of like some smart people like uh, gia tolentino of the new yorker talking about scam artists and about and about millennial culture and about all of these things issues that are surrounding the festival and surrounding this whole debacle i mean those are the issues that are under discussion it's got you know a lot of cutaways to shows like parks and recreation and family guy this sort of thing it's just that kind of this is a style of documentary filmmaking that i very very strongly dislike Um, but it's interesting to see the two films in, in contrast in my opinion in the ethics off i very strongly also favor Netflix, um, I I, th- I feel like paying McFarland is far, far worse. <laughs> I, I will say there's no sense that Jerry Media is complicit in this at all, in, in the Netflix one. But my argument to that would be, what did they do? What did they do? Like Jerry Media is terrible. They are terrible. They're terrible. I think people just want to say <laughs> that. But for like, anyone who knows, they're, they're joke stealers. They're like notorious joke stealers and unattributed, uh, passing other people's jokes off as their own in their marketing materials. No, I'm, I'm sure they are. And I mean, I don't think that, I don't think you can, you, you look at the film and see them as heroic exactly, but they kind of deliver on their part of the festival, which is to promote it. And they've got a bunch of people to turn out. I mean, I think on their end, if you look at them as a vendor, it makes a little bit of sense. I mean, obviously it's a little more complicated than that and, and perhaps they are complicit. Um, but then, the, of course, the other aspect of it, the reason why Netflix and, and Chris Smith uh, partnered with them is because they kind of had to, uh, yeah. uh, because they need the footage. I mean, that was the same it's thing. It's good footage. Yeah, <laughs> they got like mm-hmm. I mean, it's just the stuff with that com- the commercial or the video they shot. You know, like there's so much 
gold there and because that's that's all the behind the scenes stuff yeah. all the promo because that's that's part of the footage that's in under dispute right that's the was it matt matt projects matt yeah, matt, yeah that matt projects because like at the end of the day the only thing that they successfully accomplished was making this amazing ad you know and it really is what kind of jump-started the whole thing so being able to see like how that was made mm-hmm. and how it created the snowball effect, I think is really important. And you need to be actually be able to see not just the footage itself, but what was left on the cutting room floor in this wild beach party that Does I, anyone, do any of the guests in the models, especially does anyone look happy to be there? It looks like just yeah. a miserable experience. No. Yeah. I mean, like jaw rules yelling at them to get in the water in the middle of the night, you know, like, I mean, yeah. they, how far does their, their booking fee take them? <laughs> but I don't know. Also, I mean, you realize that, that there, there are parts of the world that overinflate the importance of jaw rule. Uh, especially in, in 20... <laughs> you mean you know, hip-hop mogul job? Yeah, job in mid-2015s. This is not, you know, the mid-2010s. This is not Jay-Z we're talking about. It's Ja Rule. Yeah, <laughs> yeah boy, how... It, it, he's really been able to kind of, like, sidestep a lot of this controversy. He's, yeah. He's hit really yeah. deep here. Yeah. And I, I, I you know, wh- the question, what did you know and when did you know it, probably should be asked more intently of him. Whereas, you know, the Netflix film really very you know strongly suggests this is a one-man scam in terms of the yeah. way this all broke down but well you know uh there is sort of a, like a void in the middle of this film that is billy mcfarland like maybe this is sort of segueing into connections a little bit but for like as much time as we spend an american movie with mark borchardt the footage we get of billy mcfarland here is i don't want to say minimal but he is not engaging with the camera the way that we see mark uh do in american movie so it's a little harder to get a sense of the sway that he apparently has of our people. Like we're told that he has like a charisma and he's a good talker and, you know, he can sell anything. We don't really see a whole lot of that until like the footage at the very end when he's running this second, third, fourth, whoever <laughs> who knows how what number scam, you know, trying to sell fraudulent tickets. Um, that's, I feel like the m- most we actually see him engaging with the camera so it's a little harder to maybe get a sense of the power he held over people and how that you know power may or may not have uh intertwined with that of jaw rule <laughs> yeah though i will say i don't think fire fraud benefits at all by yeah. having him there i think I, I think he that's my main curiosity i think, he, ta- I think yeah. he takes the money and runs there's not a lot of i mean there's a, some there's some filmmaking tricks where you're, where they will just not cut after the end of something he said and it'll be this kind of this awkward mm-hmm. moment and then, and then there'll be a cut and that seems that's supposed to seem damning i think but i think he played them pretty good for a big chunk of cash in my opinion he's in jail what what does he even i guess he needs money when he gets out well um, yeah mm-hmm. I mean, and i guess if he was asking for cash maybe commissary <laughs> maybe he was looking maybe he was looking to uh not have people notice uh a uh, certain yeah. chunk of money as well. That would be un- that would be unethical. <laughs> <laughs> but we, there's still lots to talk about, so we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between American Movie and Fire. I started talking to Billy, and from the get-go, it was you know we're all running around scrambling every day to find new houses. We need help from you guys. Start to cut people. These people aren't paying for the experience. Tell them not to come. And it was a constant battle because what they cared most about was the influencers. So I'm imploring them to cancel paying guests at this point. You know, they're not going to have a place to stay. 
And the response from Billy was, we're not a problems-focused group, we're a solutions-oriented group. We need to have a positive attitude about this. We need to have a good attitude. And he was unflappable, but he was also entirely delusional. So it was this constant battle in, in my mind between, is this guy a genius or is he a madman? Because he just would not take no for an answer and he would not take advice. And where do you land now? He's a liar. Now it's time for Connections, where we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I think that the obvious place to start is Mark Borchardt versus Billy McFarlane. What do they have in common? What do they don't have in common? Well, I think one's a dreamer, one's a scammer. You know, they may have visions for things they don't really have the skills to execute or the means to execute or, or whatever, but... I think the question of intent is is very uh, central to what what sets them apart from each other. Yeah, I, I was reminded just now of the short little exchange between Borchardt and Mike Shank in American Movie, where Mike is talking about how he might like to be a producer because you get like money and women or, or something, you know. And Mark's just like, "What? He's he's not having it." That what Mike Shank is saying, like, strikes me as very much more in the Billy McFarland mold. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying in the first half about Borchardt's dreams being modest, noble, I don't know, pick your adjective, but like what he wants to do is a a creative endeavor. Like he wants to make something. And Billy McFarland just seems to want to be rich, famous, an influencer, to be, you know, king of the millennials, whatever. Mm -hmm. Like it's all very power and status based. Whereas Mark Borchardt is seems very much more creativity based you know whatever model of creativity we're dealing with with him but you know it'd be very funny to see them uh like in a room together having lunch i want to see mark borchardt making the movie of billy mcfarland about (laughs) billy mcfarland (laughs) yeah no that that would be pretty funny but but there is that basic idea of someone who has this great vision and has the ability and has the the charisma to bring a lot of people on board and and have them work very very hard to make Mm -hmm. it make it happen and really i think with the knowledge i mean billy mcfarland probably there had to have been a part of billy mcfarland thought like this is gonna i'm gonna make this happen this is gonna actually i'm gonna pull this off and borchardt has that too but there's also the other side where they both perhaps knew that they wouldn't either and that other people were going to be end up being disappointed (laughs) by uh having come aboard and and put in the effort because they're because things were not going to work out for them. I mean, it's hard to get inside the mind of Billy McFarlane, as you say. He's not a, he's a presence, but not present in, mm. in fire. Um, and Borchardt is an open book. We're hearing, we, we know, we're hearing so much from him. But, um, but even if we did get more from Billy McFarlane, like you get the sense he would never be the sort of open book that Mark Borchardt is because he is a scam artist and he's, he's hiding stuff from everyone, you know, like his employees, his partners, you know, like part of the theme of this movie is he was playing a shell game you know and and so that type of personality or like a person who's running that kind of scam would never be the sort of open and forthcoming that mark borchardt is i would assume (laughs) what ultimately ends up being if we're talking about fire festival as a scam 
at what point does it become a scam? And then at what point does it... In the be- financing of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I mean, he's borrowing against money he he doesn't have and, mm. and promising a re- returns on investment that he, he can't. I'm very fascinated by that woman, Carola, who, you know, apparently has financed who knows how many of, of Billy's uh, dreams over the years. Maybe she's his, his Uncle Bill, you know? <laughs> but, <laughs> but he's definitely screwing investors i mean that's well no he went to prison for wire fraud wire right fraud, yeah. yeah but he um was charged with defrauding investors you know and that's i think definitely where the the scam comes in but was there a point though where he was just simply in over his head and then it kind mm-hmm. of became a scam you know like yeah I, I think i think in terms of the general public it becomes a scam when they continue to sell something they know they're not going to be able to deliver and i guess you know if you want to be generous it's fairly late in the process i mean up until the moment before they thought Blink-182 was going to be there. I, I don't know, you know, but they at the same time, though, like they know they can't sell these, like, these bungalows and these, these gourmet meals that they're saying they're going to provide. I, I don't... But consider that yeah. they're there, though. They're on the ground. They're bussing people in. They have... Yeah. They're trying to throw some crappy version of, of this festival. And there was there might be, in addition to scammery, a just a massive level of delusion mm-hmm. that, well, and uh, ineptitude right and I, I think that is maybe sort of another link between mm-hmm. borchardt and and mcfarland you know like the desire may be there the desire is definitely there with, with both of them but the ability eh, you know it gets a, a, a little shakier there like with fire there's that little bit where the guy who's booking all the acts has never booked anyone before you, you, yeah. you know and, and doesn't really know what he's doing and billy just like bringing in people he knows to help with things but like not actually bringing in a fest like a person who has done festivals until like what 45 days before it's supposed to start <laughs> like there's just a level of cluelessness here that just kneecaps the surplus of ambition you know and there's also part of that too on both of their parts is that this belief that if you just start to do something things will magically materialize around it. I mean, think about where Barshart is trying to start making Northwestern. He doesn't have a script finished. He's in huge debt, so he doesn't have Mm -hmm. any of the money in place. And yet, he's making casting calls. He's putting crews together. He's having a production meeting when really any sane person would say, wait a minute, I don't have any of the i'm not even anywhere close i mean he does get to that point but like and billy mcfarland doesn't maybe but maybe that's the difference billy mcfarland never gets to the point he gets all the way to the to the end of the line he's still trying to push the scam he's still on the ground you know on top of a rock or something trying to uh direct people he's it's uh there's a, a level of delusion here that um, I mean, both of them share in common. I mean, maybe more so Billy. I mean, yeah, that is sort of an interesting part of his personality where it's like a 100% scam artist wouldn't have been anywhere near that scene, you know, for fear of being driven driven away with pitchforks, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they thought they, they could pull out a miracle at the last second. Maybe they're just, maybe they're just dumb. Maybe, they, maybe, maybe their only talent comes from like she's just scamming people. But, but do they know they're scamming them? I think is the central question. You know, like yeah. you know, to kind of rephrase your question from earlier. Earlier, at what point did they become aware that this wasn't working? Yeah, I mean, Borchardt does become aware eventually and says, "We can't, we can't do this anymore." This is. Oh yeah, I, I, I wouldn't. I mean, when I say near. scammer, I don't mean him. No, no, but, but Billy, I, I, Billy, I'm not sure. It's a mystery, and I, and I, and unfortunately, he's. He, I mean, he's not in this film, and then he's super cagey mm-hmm. <laughs> and not forthcoming at all in the other fire fraud so we can't really um know 
what was going through. You his, had to wonder if it's a pathology to it at some point. Yeah, yeah. And, like, and, 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 just, and the way he was sort of leading was like, I really only want positive news. I mean, like you get this mm-hmm. early, you get that early scene in, in Fire where uh, with the pilot, and the pilot is like, oh, the pilot's like, I've spent, I spent a <laughs> night or two on. This Google island. Flight sim- oh, I thought you were talking about the Google Flight Simulator. <laughs> oh, that was so brilliant. That's a that's a great Christmas moment. Um, but but just where he's like, you need to stop thinking about models and start thinking about toilets. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. like there's just there's a lot of like practical concerns that Billy McFarland doesn't have time for and just sort of magically thinks will work themselves out somehow, even all the way to that day. Um, and and maybe and then you get to just the cold reality of you have a bunch of people on a rock. And these tents and yeah. then nothing with else. Like a very influencer level version of Lord of the Fly seems to break out the one <laughs> night everyone's there. Yeah, with the rainstorm that happens the night before. Yeah. It soaks all the mattresses oh. and oh my god, what a what a scene that must have been. I mean, that does feel like a little bit of an echo of the very beginning of American movie when we're still sort of in the northwestern part of the of the setup and there's like a couple production meetings and mark is like laying out his grand plan you know like black and white at 35 millimeter whatever someone in the room asks about financing and you can just see like the little like hiccup in his brain and he's like yeah and then just continues on without like even even addressing it, you know? <laughs> and so that sort of unwillingness to engage with the practicalities of this dream, like Mark eventually does, I think, a little more over the course of the movie do that in the making of Coven. But at the outset, he is coming at from a dreamer perspective, not a practical perspective. For sure. Um, you know, one thing, this is a this is a point of contrast between the two movies is just the style of it, uh, the style mm-hmm. of them. I mean, the, you, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, American movie is much more done in a verite style over over a long period of months, um, whereas Fire is a very compact, more journalistic way of telling stories. So so I guess um, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on those contrasting styles and then where maybe where you can find Chris Smith in in, in that. I think the one thing they have in common and the kind of the thread throughout his documentary films, at least, is he's he's very good at interviews. He's just from, from American movie on. I mean, not to necessarily takes that much to draw Mark Borchardt out, but he asks good questions. He gets good stories. And like in films like Collapse and Jim and Andy, uh, The Great Beyond mm-hmm. and, and, and this, he's just good at getting people on camera talking. Uh, like, uh, for instance, I mean, Andy King, you know, whatever reluctance he has to tell this very embarrassing story, uh, he's clearly been put at ease by Smith and his team that he can, he can, he can share it. He can talk, you know, and that's something they have, they have in common. But yeah, I guess I would love to see a verite account of fire, of the fire festival as well. Um, that not being a possibility. I, th- I think this is, is a very smart alternate approach. Another similarity before I, I go into contrast uh, is that I think both films demonstrate an awareness of the need for payoff and like things that you expect to see and want to see throughout the movie. And you get it. Like I mentioned it with the getting to see the it's all right. It's OK. There's something to live for. Like, like you you have to show us the, the end result of, of that, you know, and just like in fire, you have to show us the cheese sandwich, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like there's an awareness of the things that we as an audience 
want to see as a result of what we've been seeing that I think uh, is is demonstrated in, in both films. As for contrast, fire is just so much glossier, and a lot of that is obviously in the archival footage, but also in the talking head segments, the way that they are staged. Like we talked about American movie being a Midwestern film. And a lot of that to me is how much of the talking heads are just filmed like in people's living rooms and their barca loungers or, you know, Mm -hmm. with their like kitschy decor or, or whatever, you know, it just makes them feel like real people in the moment. Whereas the talking heads in fire, you know, they're presented in kind of these like sterile modern office spaces for the most part, you know, and they are looking back on something, you know, they're reminiscing and that's not really what's happening in American movie. They're not looking back on an event the way that the interviewees in fire are looking back on an event. So the interviews play out a little different. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, you know, one thing I will say in ter- another connection, I guess, between a lot of Christmas work has to do with labor. I talked about a little bit with American job, American movie and the, the odd jobs that Mark Borchardt holds down. And then and then what I think is the prevailing theme here uh, about all of the hard work that people did in good faith to make this festival happen, which is a story we didn't get. We did not. We definitely did not get that story on social media, which is what us, allowed us to enjoy uh, the collapse of that festival without um, feeling any, any residual <laughs> residual guilt. Mm-hmm. Poor uh, JR gets driven off the island. It was like kind of his right hand man, you know, that kept getting him more and more day laborers. And then once everyone left the island, people were like pounding down his door wanting to get paid. Oh, no. Oh, no. And he's like, I just left the island. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Andy King talks about like ducking down in Mm -hmm. someone's car and something like that. I mean, just getting out of that space without being mauled. JR uh, is the equivalent of the actor who kept getting his head smashed into the cabinet. <laughs> you know, just really there for this guy's dream, willing, you know, willing to go all the way and just getting punished for it. Who's the Mike Shank of this one? The oh, what his his little right-hand man uh Oh, the guy who's like yes, who's like super High strong and, and running yeah. around. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I his name he's too. He's like early in the. He's like you see most of him in the promotional yeah. part of it. Uh, yeah. He's Mike Shank. <laughs> but it's been interesting just to kind of get a sense of this, this the scope of Smith's career and the types of films that he he's done. I mean, he never has done anything like American Movie again. And even though he's worked in the documentary realm, I think he's. Mm-hmm. I think just the commitment that it takes to spend that much time with somebody and develop a film like he did with American Movie is just something he doesn't have the bandwidth for anymore. And so he's taking taking on a lot of projects where he can do a more journalistic style while um, still pursuing the things that, that interest him, um, uh, which are pretty vivid characters. I mean, uh, uh, I, I recommended Collapse in Collapse our last, great, yeah. last podcast, which I love. Um, and, and you mentioned Jim and Andy the Great Beyond. Um, which is absolutely fascinating, and uh, and then of course here Bark Borchardt and, and, and Billy McFarland. Um, so he's he really has a good good sense of like a a single person is like a, a driving force is really going to take you through a movie. That's kind of it. Yeah, I mean it is very slick, and I think it needs to be. I mean it yeah. is it, it is what it is. I mean it, it can't. I don't think. I don't know if there's another way of approaching it, but it is unusual for this kind of a film to be directed by Chris Smith. That's surprising, but maybe I should be less surprising. He does a lot of commercials too, and those look a lot different than American Movie as well. Mm. One thing these two films have in common is 
uh, uh, drinking uh, and, <laughs> and partying. I would and, call it boozing. And boozing, <laughs> and and how that how that gets in the way of being productive. Yeah. Um, um, so we should I mean, talk about that a little bit. I mean, I think the uh, iconic shot of Bill is like Billy McFarland passed out on the beach. <laughs> you know? um, like he's our leader. Yeah, exactly. He just gets so sleepy. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. Uh, no, but I mean, like so much of the first act of fire is given over to the filming of that ad and the the big party and how Billy McFarland and Ja Rule seem to envision it as a party that just happened to be filmed and you know but the you have the director guy talking about how like there was no shot list there there was no one directing a scene it was just like point cameras at us while we have an amazing time mm-hmm. you know and so there just seems to be this philosophy of have a great time and everyone else will have a great time and everything will work out that is behind the whole conception of Firefest. And that is dumb <laughs> and a little yeah. and a little dark. Um, and I think it's a little dark in uh, American movie too. To I mean, it's very much, I don't say it's very much backgrounded. I think the, there's definitely some comments from Mark's family about his drinking. There's obviously the stuff with Mike Shank and talking about how he and Mark like bonded over drinking vodka together, you know? <laughs> no, no, it's, it's vodka. Vodka. <laughs> <laughs> but American Movie doesn't like, I think, try and make the case that Mark's drinking is like preventing him from seeing his dreams but it suggests it's maybe an element. And similarly, I don't think that Billy McFarlane's partying, drinking, passing out on the beach is the primary reason (laughs) that Firefest didn't work out, but it does speak to one issue that is in the mix, I think. With McFarlane, too, there's that sense of just, he just does not have the patience to see something this complicated through. It's just just not in his interest. And maybe you could see the roots of the trouble with the festival itself in the fact that they went off to shoot these this promotion without a shot list without giving you you that the ABCs of what actually needs to be accomplished through this. I mean what they, what they ended up with due to the, due to the professionals that they hired <laughs> to make this promotion was something quite good that did exactly what they wanted it to do. But you can't necessarily, so in that sense, you uh, hooray for Billy McFarlane for hiring mm-hmm. the right people and having the kind of the right idea in terms of, you know, how to sell a certain lifestyle back to yeah. uh, a certain type of person. But when you have to sit down with plans, deal with stuff like plumbing, I mean, is, <laughs> you know, Billy McFarlane is, doesn't want to spend a second of his life thinking about that kind of thing. He's just, it's just not in his, his nature and... Uh, he'd much rather be the guy partying and be be the one, you know, living out this fantasy that he is offering to other people. Yeah, as the whole shot list thing, there might be a little bit of foreshadowing there. It's almost like if this were a narrative film and not a documentary, that you would you would put that detail in there to set up the disaster to come. And I, I don't know. Maybe let's create a project where we promoted by tr- asking a bunch of influencers to publish a post of, of orange or something like that. It's, <laughs> uh, it's an orange tile. Yeah, orange tile. <laughs> that worked, though. It was, orange. it was clever. Yeah, there's nothing, you know, they were selling complete emptiness, but it was still, it worked. The emptiness is the color orange. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, maybe that's the title of this episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Orange is the new something or other. There's something there. Orange is the new scam. Orange <laughs> is the new scam. Dang, that's good. <laughs> I like it. Um, I guess before, other thing before we move on is like, 
do people really get that worked up about seeing Blink One Eighty Two in in, in twenty seventeen or whatever? Yeah, but, but they're big. They had a bunch of hits, didn't they? They they had a bunch of hits, yeah. but it's like this. You know, is that uh, you're gonna travel halfway across the world to go see Blink One Eighty Two? You can just just wait. They'll come. You'll come. Well, to your well town. there's even that guy who, who there's even that guy who uh, the the guy who bought a ticket. He said something like, "I don't." care about blink 182 it was about you know the experience yeah i, I mean i think there are some other names on the lineup uh like Migos, Migos major and major laser like they're like they're they're draws it's not you know? but this is this is not Lollapalooza. This no. is this well. Is stop. Bad, Let's get though. real. Lollapalooza would definitely have Blink One Eighty Two headline yeah. at this point. Well, sure, <laughs> it's it's not bad. It's it's funny to me though too that I mean Blink One Eighty Two is ostensibly a punk band. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well. This, is, this is very much not a punk festival. Well, it's very ostensibly, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But I mean, I, I came away uh, from the, these films uh, liking Mark Borchardt a lot more. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Mick He's a human being with with flaws and not not somebody who's trying to uh, rip people off to his own benefit. I mean, he just there's boy to be to have that knowledge that people are just going to have to eat tens of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. um, that that is that are owed to them and just move on and be okay with that. I mean, oof, that is sociopathic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so American Movie is available on DVD. I don't think it ever came to Blu-ray. Didn't. Uh, I, I can recommend that the DVD is really worth seeking out. There's oh, yeah, lots there's of lot deleted of scenes on it. Coven's on there. And it's an example of why uh, physical media has its advantages. It does. But, but but you can also get it digitally oh? on all the usual platforms. Fire is on Netflix. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, what in the film world has been good for you lately? So for a a list article thing I'm writing, um, I've been watching and thinking about a lot of uh, Best Picture runner-ups, like other films that were nominated that did not win Best Picture. A lot of them are movies I've seen. I've seen a few movies over the years, but some things I haven't hadn't seen in a long time or had had watched for the first time. And one of the latter is a film called from 1930 called The Big House, which was nominated for Best Picture uh, that year. It did not win, but it's really I found it really entertaining and really uh, interesting film. Uh, Leonard Maltin called it sort of the father of all prison pictures, and and I don't know enough history. I, he's you know I'm going to assume he's correct. He's you know, it's Leonard Maltin. He knows his stuff, mm-hmm. and you can see a lot of later uh, cliche and then, well not even cliches. There's just sort of elements of, of prison films that come out of it, but it is a fascinating movie in many ways and and a very kind of clever one too. A very young Robert Montgomery is ostensibly set up as the protagonist. He's a in, in sort of a unhardened uh, non-criminal who's sent to prison before uh, manslaughter because he's killed somebody in a drunk driving accident, but he's not in any way prepared to deal with criminal life. But it really kind of abandons him and makes him out to be uh, an un- unworthy sap pretty early on and focuses instead on a pair of criminals played by Chester Morris and Wallace Beery and much referenced in a, in a, in a, <laughs> a film we've covered on this show, right? Wrestling but, pictures. Yeah. But um, as, as sort of like these 
hardened criminals who have a have a bond and and they have like the whole like prison system and in some ways you can see a lot of what's to come in future depictions of prison and it's savvy about that and it's a pre-code film and it gets very violent the finale of it is is incredibly violent but there's also sort of this this sort of faith that and there are some corrupt and not so nice guards but but the actual warden is a very well-meaning guy who wants to reform people he wears a bow tie when he speaks to the prisoners uh, so you know it's it's there's there's all kinds of oddness to it as well but i i found it really interesting um and very worth uh, seeking out and it's available on various streaming services uh, so that's the big house from 1930 directed by uh, george hill george not joy george roy hill no no, Just George, George Hill. George, quote unquote, not Roy Hill. <laughs> a little, uh, little, little before George Hill's time. Yeah, exactly. But hey, it's Wallace Beery in his prime, in his, in his beefy prime. Uh, Scott, how about you? Um, okay, so the uh, Academy Awards released their nominations a bit ago. It will have been a few weeks, I guess, by the time this podcast drops. But one of the films nominated for Best Documentary is a movie called Of Fathers and Sons. Um, this is a film I saw at True False last year. Uh, completely blew me away. I thought it would take the world by storm. <laughs> it did not. And now it's available on Canopy. I don't have Canopy. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I, Chicago, I, I Chicago, desperately wish canopy. I had it because it has all of Frederick Wiseman's movies and it has all kinds of wonderful things on it. But it has a father. this film of Fathers and Sons is available if you have Canopy, So, which is why I'm recommending it here. But Which, if you don't know, Canopy is a streaming service available through many public libraries. And universities as well. And universities, right? yeah. Um, so... In any case, so a Fathers and Sons is a documentary that is a verite film that goes inside of an honest-to-goodness family of jihadists in Syria. And it is, it's just stunning to be there. I mean, this is a director who had to befriend a very dangerous man under false pretenses and who cannot come back this uh it's it's it was so there's that part of it as well and we just get a sense a very rich sense of this father who is indoctrinating his very young boys into um becoming jihadists and becoming terrorists and training uh we get a sense of what their life is like uh which is a life of extreme poverty and austerity uh, we get a sense of what war-torn Syria looks like, which is also quite frightening. Uh, this is an extraordinarily dark movie, and it was a film that I expected just to take off, at least in editorial pages, and culture sections. like It's just such an essential movie. Um, I will say that over at Vulture, Abraham Reisman did a really excellent interview with the documentary filmmaker named Talal Durki that will give you kind of more information on the movie and, and how much trouble it was to make and, and uh, just the courage of this Syrian filmmaker going back uh, home to make it uh, and, and getting close to this family. But uh, it's just one of those things where I, I just you just can't believe what you're seeing. You can't believe that any documentary would be able to get this close to people who are have terrorism and violence in mind and and want to pass it along to future generations i mean th this guy this father i mean one of his sons is named osama <laughs> you know so that gives you an idea of what uh what, what he's all about so it's called Love fathers and sons um you can catch it on canopy now i, I assume it's nominated for best documentary um so uh, hopefully it was, it's going to get maybe a second life now because i think it's pretty essential cool yeah. um genevieve 
Uh, well, now for something completely different. Um, I'm going to recommend a movie that I've been wanting to catch up with for a long time and was finally able to. And that movie is Tully, which came out last year. And we briefly considered uh, pairing doing it on the podcast and pairing it with Mary Poppins uh, based on descriptions <laughs> of Mackenzie Davis's titular character as a millennial Mary Poppins, uh, also known as a night nurse, to Charlize Theron's Marlowe, who has just given birth to her third child and is clearly battling some form of depression postpartum or otherwise when the film starts. Um, I'm really glad we did not do that pairing <laughs> because Jason Reitman's film, uh, which finds him reuniting once again with screenwriter Diablo Cody, is a very different film than Mary Poppins. It's much sharper, more barbed, and rooted in much more difficult emotional territory. I know Reitman and Cody's filmmaking partnership isn't necessarily for everyone, but I generally really like their work together, and I think this is maybe their strongest effort together, even more so than Young Adult, which is a film I love and which also starred Theron. But I think what puts this one above that for me, just slightly, is the presence of Mackenzie Davis, who is such a brilliantly conceived and realized counterpoint to Theron's performance as Marlowe, who is so clearly worn down and emptied out by motherhood and marriage. Uh, it's not a spoiler to say that Tully helps Marlowe out of the hole she's in, but it would be a spoiler to go into specifics as to how. Uh, but suffice to say, uh, it's clear more or less from Tully's first appearance that she's more complex than a simple Mary Poppins figure who magically arrives to fix everything. Um, I think it's really kind of extraordinary and special how Tully unfurls the nature of what's really happening to Marlowe without losing its sense of humor. I think this is probably the most balanced writing Cody's done. Uh, the dialogue definitely has that sort of snarky, borderline glib spark that she's so associated with, but it always stems from what the characters are going through emotionally at that moment. And I really don't think there's a bum note in the script. It helps that both Theron and Davis have a real ear for her dialogue, along with Ron Livingston as Marlowe's checked out husband and Mark Duplass as her brother, who initially hooks her up with Tully. Um, and Reitman does bring some nice style to the proceedings as well, in particular with a pair of really neatly staged montages that sort of echo each other at different points in Marlowe's story. I'm not sure why I missed this one when it was in theaters, but I'm really glad I finally got a chance to catch up with it. And you should too. Uh, it's currently streaming on HBO and its various uh, platforms and is available for digital rental pretty much everywhere else. Tully. Yeah, Tully. I, I, it's, it's the best Jason Reitman film of the year. <laughs> <laughs> I, will say, I, will say that much. I liked it more than the front runner. And I will say, too, with regard to Diablo Cody, is I think that she's just matured and gotten mm -hmm. better as a screenwriter. Yeah. I, I think there was a a sense that she was leaning really heavily on the stylized dialogue in Juno and in Jennifer's body, and she's been pulling back a little bit. Maybe the filmmakers who are collaborators as well. I mean, what you think about a script like Ricky and the Flash, uh, that mm -hmm. you know, the, which we which we love, I and mean, that's yeah. a very fine script that suited what Jonathan Demi does very well. And and um, yeah, I think she's able to be a little bit more real. I mean, this is mm -hmm. definitely young adult in this film, especially are grounded in very real seeming experience. Yes. and and um, and it, it shows. I mean, I, I, the film loses me at a. At a point. Oh really? Yeah, but, but I, I suspect it's the same point that it really hooked me. Okay, okay, so yeah, that, that's a your mileage may vary. Development de definitely, definitely, but but um, but I think it didn't quite get as much of a play as it needed to. Young adults as well. I mean, both yeah. movies, both movies, I think maybe deserved a little bit more of an audience they uh, ended up getting. Yeah, I need to see that. I need to see Jennifer's body too because I, I know people dismiss that at the time, but I, I it's, see it's the, gotten a lot a of huge cult following yeah. now, and it just yeah, I was one of the dismissers. I feel bad. So it's yeah. it's a movie for the Me Too era. 
<laughs> yeah, apparently so. I mean, it I would, would be interesting to see it through that lens. But I hate to I hate to revisit things that I've panned oh, <laughs> that I, I suspect might that I suspect might be better than I thought. Was, was, a, was that where feeling. Honest to Blog came from? Or no, no that's, that was that's, that was that's Juno. Juno. That, that was Juno. Gosh. Yeah. All right. Well, Home Skillet. <laughs> Don't you remember Home Skillet? <laughs> um, I like Juno though. I, I liked uh, Young Adult even more. I yeah, so Young Adult is good. Boy, you could. But so I think... I, I'm going to make this a double recommendation. If you haven't seen Young Adult, see Young Adult. And Tully. Yeah, <laughs> they are related. Yeah. And that's it for this edition of the Next Picture Show. Our next pair will come out February 19th and February 26th. Genevieve, what's coming up next? Everyone knows art is dangerous, but what if it's really dangerous? Dan Gilroy's new Netflix released film, Velvet Buzzsaw, explores the power of art by taking that notion to its logical extreme. Set in a high art world inhabited by passionate enthusiasts, preening posers, striving careerists, and everyone in between, the film concerns a cache of mysterious paintings with seemingly supernatural abilities. Inspired by a listener's suggestion, we're pairing Velvet Buzzsaw with the Roger Corman-directed film Bucket of Blood, in which Dick Miller becomes a beatnik superstar by creating some incredibly lifelike sculptures using unorthodox methods. As a bonus, the pairing will give us a chance to pay homage to the great Miller, who recently died at the age of 90. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of American movie, Fire, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve Kosky. I am the deputy TV editor at Vulture.com, and I'm on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Keith? Oh, I'm, I have a slow period for me, guys. Um, other stuff going on is keeping me away from, from writing as much as I want to, but I am re- recapping True Detective over at uh, at, at Vulture for, for Genevieve Kosky. Um, and I'm, you know, by the time this Clean, comes out... Clean, pristine copy every time. Love place, it, pl- Oh, of course. <laughs> the best. Uh, places I usually write include, the, you know, The Ringer and, and, and Decider and... Um, Mel and and uh, you know uh, where else do I write these you know Verge, Verge sometimes um, so by the time this airs I, I'm sure I'll have picked up all kinds of wonderful assignments at those places so. <laughs> yeah, and and any others that who are, might be listening to this podcast right. assign me with things oh yeah yeah hire me uh, you can uh, you also find me on Twitter at kfips three uh, thousand you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias and uh, you can find my work at the New York Times uh, Washington Post the Ringer. Um, NPR, Variety, and other other places, and Vulture. Uh, Vulture, I have, I guess by the time this drops, I'll have uh, a, a big list that I, I'm working on now about uh, snowbound thrillers. Ooh. 20, mm-hmm. 20 of them. There's lots of those things. And, and what movie might that be pegged to? Could I guess? Go ahead. Is it Cold Pursuit? It is Cold Pursuit. <laughs> it is Cold Pursuit. You laugh now, but Cold Pursuit has got its merits. It's not meritless. <laughs> it's actually pretty, it's very silly. It's a very silly film. But yeah, and you can find our co-host, Tasha Robinson, on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. And she is the uh, film and TV editor at The Verge. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. 
Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. <laughs>